This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, whenever we hit those ominous strains from Night on Bald Mountain, you know that we're looking at something that's, well, ominous. The fact is, at the moment, we're not looking at something that's ominous. We're looking at an array of things that are ominous. And although we strive to keep it light, on this program, there's times when we just, just have to go a little dark. And today's show might be one of our darker ones. I guess we feel justified from the, the fun we had on last week's program speaking with that great comedian, and that's probably the only way to describe him, Burt Ward, half of the comedy team of Adam West and Burt Ward, better known to you and I as Batman and Robin from the 1960s television program. I've been watching a few episodes uh, since we had Burt on last week and <laughs> continue to laugh at the comedy they present. So we're going to uh, point to that uh, reservoir of comedic goodwill, which we think we may have amassed, and, and go... Go a little bit in the opposite direction today because we're looking around and noticing that um, California's on fire. Last year, I think we had five of the six largest fires in California history burning in late summer. And currently, the fire that is burning north of Sacramento is now the largest in state history. And it's rather inescapable that there is a link between this great conflagration and climate change. Doing some reading for today's program, I stumbled upon the little nugget that the current drought that's affecting the southwestern part of the United States appears to be the worst of the four large droughts that lasted decades that have taken place in the last 1,200 years. This one is up there with the other four and and might be the very worst. This is a pretty grim topic that we're going to spend some time on. We mentioned, I think, two weeks ago in the show that we suspected that there was an insect apocalypse going on, and since that time I've obtained a book on that very topic, which we will take a look at. Uh, It does appear to be happening, and it's probably related in some capacity to climate change. The Biden administration just got around to uh, banning chlorpyrifos organophosphate pesticides, which have been marketed since the 1960s. The serious issues of chemical pollution and other miscellaneous pollutions need to be looked at. And then, of course, there's Afghanistan, where things are not going well. Possibly the worst part about things not going well in Afghanistan is how it is being covered in the media, which appears to be slanting the reportage to favor those elements that would try and pin the blame on everything going wrong on Joe Biden and his administration, which does not deserve the criticism that's being heaped upon it. Well, not to say that it is not deserving of some criticism, but the bulk of it should be placed on the shoulders of um, other presidents. So yeah, the sea of disinformation that we're operating in right now, uh, something we need to take a pot shot at or two. I don't know. I'm sorry. We're just surrounded by horrific news at the moment. And at some point, 
need to address it. Week after week, we make decisions as to what what we do want to talk about, and we're always trying to keep things on the lighter side, but there comes a point where you just have to address some of the bad stuff. So buckle your seatbelt. Don't forget the worst news, Charlie Watts. Mr. Merlin points out that the worst news of all, perhaps, perhaps might be the, the passing of the Rolling Stones legendary drummer, Charlie Watts. Personally, I don't think it makes the top five, but hell, it's not good news. So where the hell to begin? I guess the one that's really grabbing most of the headlines at the moment is Afghanistan. So let's talk a little bit about how that, uh, that nation is being turned over to the Taliban. Although the truth is, the, the, the complexities of, of who rules Afghanistan is something that I don't think is understood by more than a handful of people. Perhaps the bottom line worst thing about all this is that people like NPR are, are giving voice to Republicans who are just blaming this all on Biden, calling it disgraceful and ignoring so many realities. It's being contended by right-wingers that America is now at risk again because with the Taliban in charge, my goodness, another Osama bin Laden may come along and plan an attack on the United States. And the continuing cover-up regarding the Saudi connection to 9-11 is uh, an integral part of, of how this misinformation is being spread, that it's all about the Taliban in Afghanistan. No, it's all about rich Saudis. And uh, again, we are clearly not experts on the political situation in the nation of Afghanistan. But many years ago, we did speak with a CIA officer who had been in charge of going into Afghanistan and trying to find Osama bin Laden. That would be Gary Bernson. He wrote a book called Jawbreaker, and uh, we're pleased to say he spoke with us about it. It is available on our website, radioparallax.com, and, and I think is probably worth a listen to these many years later. Bertson spoke highly of Hamid Karzai, who we installed at some point, I think, as our puppet president in Afghanistan. Oh, the last one that we had uh, evidently left with a number of cars and uh, suitcases full of money, some of which, according to some reports, could not be fit into the helicopter that was having them depart for the United Arab Emirates. They had to leave, I guess, some of them right there on the tarmac. By all accounts, everyone expected that the government could hold on for at least a couple of weeks as as we were drawing down and getting people out. But when the president, more or less, jumps on a helicopter and says, I'm out of here, well, let's just say that accelerated the process of deterioration. A lot of, a lot of commentators that have made their way on the news media seem to be giving some, I think, clear-visioned views of what has taken place. Uh, they were pointing out, I don't know if we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Milan, I don't remember whether we did or not, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of the military that was set up in Afghanistan, the pretend military that we had set up, involved the U.S. going out and finding someone who could be a colonel or a lieutenant in this, you know, pretend military structure, which was based on the United States' structure, which, of course, has nothing to do with real-life conditions on the ground in Afghanistan. But apparently they were kind of, you know, going to the bottom of the barrel for some of these guys who could not read or write. I remember hearing one newsman, I think it might have been NPR, describing how when he was covering uh, some military actions in Afghanistan, he noticed that uh, there was a lot of trouble in uh, directing fire, ordnance fire, on the enemy positions because, well, they, they just couldn't, couldn't read the charts. It was mentioned that these fellows had a really hard time uh, filling out the paperwork <laughs> to get people paid or to get them leave of absences or, or really anything that involved paperwork. Robert Reich had a pithy comment about Afghanistan. He said, don't say that nobody won the war in Afghanistan. 
If you invested $10,000 in defense stocks when the war began, your stocks would now be worth almost $100,000. Defense contractors and their shareholders. That's who won the war in Afghanistan. Hard to argue. Another meme I'm looking at shows the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War, famine, pestilence, and death. Death is turning to a fifth horseman riding alongside and asks, and you are? To which the answer comes back, misinformation. And to be honest, I haven't even had the heart to see what they're saying on Fox News. But I think I'll quote Katie Couric on Fox, who said that Fox News is fake news. It's state-run television. It's an alternative universe. I'm shocked every time I watch it. Its viewers are getting affirmation, not information. As a result, they're not actually understanding facts and truth. It drives me crazy. And I'm pretty sure they're not reporting on the numerous tweets that Donald Trump was posting until very recently. This situation in Afghanistan has largely come about because, well, part of the refugee crisis has to do with the fact that the Trump administration was adamant about not giving forth a lot of exit visas to our people over there. They were also firm on having a hard deadline for our withdrawal, which most people agree is is never a good idea when you have an opponent that's waiting you out. As part of their negotiations with the Taliban, the Trump administration apparently insisted that the jails be opened up and people be let out. This included members of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, etc., those who were not necessarily that tight with the Taliban, but who certainly wanted to do harm to America and American interests. And what I understand is that it was exactly that faction that uh, set off a bomb a few days ago. Quoting from NBC News, taking a look at this, those who push Biden to leave Afghanistan need to admit their part in this tragedy. The Doha negotiations didn't include the Afghan government, supposedly our partners in fighting the Taliban and terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, better known as ISIS. And the deal that resulted was widely recognized as having thrown our allies under the bus as the Taliban were free to carry on fighting the Afghan army as long as they didn't attack U.S. forces. And just stop right there. Doesn't that sound like the kind of deal Trump would cut with the Taliban? Noted NBC, the Taliban proceeded to do just that, going on the offensive in March 2020 while repeatedly spurning or walking out on the Afghan government's attempts to negotiate a power-sharing agreement. As the government's sway diminished, the agreement gave the Taliban new legitimacy, making it harder to dissuade them from pursuing a total military victory in place of some accommodation with the government. In other words, it was immediately clear to all observers that the treaty comprehensively removed incentives for the Taliban to compromise. And of course, it gets worse. Another slap in the face and a further destabilization of the already volatile scene, the Trump administration coerced the understandably angry Afghan government into releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners a year ago, including 400 convicted of serious crimes such as murder. The move was designed to appease Taliban peace negotiators, but it failed to yield more diplomatic concessions. Instead, many of the release fighters promptly reinforced Taliban forces in the field, and they steadily gnawed away at the Afghan army, no doubt contributing to the unexpected speed of the Taliban's swift recapture of the country. Ironically, the Taliban then committed a similar error when they began to reclaim power in recent days. The two Taliban leaders told NBC that the group's biggest blunder was releasing prisoners from jails as they swept across Afghanistan. Those they freed are thought to include ISIS commanders, trainers, and bomb makers, even though ISIS, including the branch responsible for the attack last week, is an enemy of the Taliban. Said the Taliban leaders, they were very trained people and they're now organizing themselves. 
They closed by noting, fundamentally, Trump's decision to offer an explicit near-term date for the U.S. withdrawal as part of the Doha Agreement also proved devastating. It was widely understood by both Taliban and Afghan officials that a doomsday clock was set in motion. Meanwhile, back in the field of misinformation, the grand old party, the Republicans, as reported in Newsweek, removed a page wherein they were praising Donald Trump for his peace deal that he carved out with the Taliban. Evidently, Donald Weigel of the Washington Post was the first to spot that the page had been removed with the web address redirecting to a 404 error page featuring the quip, looks like you're as lost as Biden is. The Guardian's congressional reporter, Hugo Lowell, later confirmed this after successfully tracking down the now-deleted page via the Wayback Machine archive. The page claimed that while President Trump is championing champion peace, Joe Biden has taken the lead in pushing for endless wars. Trump criticized Biden for trying to extend things, which he did a few months past Trump's rather hard deadline of May of this year. Said Trump, it's time for Joe Biden to resign in disgrace for what he's allowed to happen in Afghanistan. To which he couldn't resist adding, it shouldn't be a big deal because he wasn't elected legitimately in the first place. And yes, noted MSN.com, when Trump says it'll go down as one of the greatest defeats in American history, um, that criticism ignores the fact that it was his administration which brokered the deal to remove troops from the region in the first place. As recently as a few months ago, here's some tweets uh, that were being put up by Trump. Let's get out of Afghanistan. Our troops are being killed by the Afghans. We train and we waste billions there. Nonsense. Rebuild the USA. How about this one? We should leave Afghanistan immediately. No more wasted lives. If we have to go back in, we go in hard and quick. How about this one? Do not allow our very stupid leaders to sign a deal that keeps us in Afghanistan through 2024 with all costs to the USA. Make America great. So what do you think, dear listener, if God forbid Trump was still sitting in the Oval Office as everything was unfolding in Afghanistan, exactly as it's unfolding. Do you think Republicans would be critical? Well, we can never truly know the answer to that, but, well, we, let's just say we here at Radio Parallax have our doubts. But good Lord, I'm looking at uh, two of the three magazines we inevitably rely upon for this program, The Week and The Economist. The Week's cover is A Shameful Ending. Subheadline, is Biden to blame for the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan? And we can answer that right away. No. The cover of The Economist shows the headline, Biden's debacle, what it means for Afghanistan and America. Yes, Biden's debacle, according to The Economist. We did report that among those who did depart Afghanistan safely was the now ex-president, Ashraf Garil, who reportedly fled the, to the UAE with dozens of aides in tow, along with bags of well, $169 million in cash, which I guess was stuffed into four cars in a, in a helicopter. Just just, just open up the car, start tossing, tossing those bags in. And it reprinted uh, the comments by Daniel Silverberg and TheAtlantic.com saying, Biden made the difficult but necessary choice. The Taliban are stronger now than they have been since 2001. And Afghan soldiers, sick of corruption and not getting paid, were already deserting the army en masse. Had Biden reneged on Trump's deal to withdraw all U.S. troops, the Taliban would have launched a major offensive and resumed attacking our soldiers. To keep the Afghan government from falling, Biden would have been forced to send in thousands of troops back in, starting the cycle of futility all over again. The status quo was not sustainable, and those who argue otherwise are engaging in fantasies. Yeah, now those of us who remember so well what it looked like in 1975 when the Saigon government collapsed and uh, the North Vietnamese army swarmed into uh, Saigon. Man, does that all ring a bell for what we're looking at now. Brings up a quote from Aldous Huxley, 
who said, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. We were asking on this show, I, I think a decade ago, what in the hell we were intending to achieve in Afghanistan. And this whole thing is fiendishly complex. One of the, uh, one of the subplots in what has taken place in Afghanistan over the last couple decades is an oil pipeline that was supposed to be routed through the country for the benefit of other nations. As you reminded you recently on this program, during the Barack Obama administration, the one non-Republican administration between 2000 and 2016, we expanded the war in Afghanistan. For what purpose? Well, we don't know. Well, actually, we do know. It has to do with the military-industrial complex, which did pretty well. David Korn, writing in MotherJones.com, said that in 2019, the Washington Post obtained classified documents showing that four successive administrations consistently hoodwinked the public into thinking we had a clear strategy for Afghanistan. Behind the scenes, Army General Douglas Lute, who served in, as Afghan war czar for Presidents Bush and Obama, admitted, we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Matthew Iglesias, writing in slowboring.com, said if the initial invasion had captured or killed Osama bin Laden, Bush could have declared victory and brought our troops home. Or he could have wholeheartedly committed to nation-building. But when bin Laden escaped, Bush switched focus to invading and nation-building in Iraq, and Afghanistan became a halfway war you couldn't win. Writing in MSNBC.com's Jihan Alim said, as President Biden takes heat for withdrawing from Afghanistan, quote, too early, unquote, after 20 years of war, the sudden collapse of the U.S.-backed Afghan government and armed forces should finally prove that our extended occupation of the country was always a mistake. Back in 2001, the initial goals of the U.S. invasion, toppling the Taliban and routing al-Qaeda, were accomplished within months. But, but then, the mission morphed into a neocon fantasy of transforming a tribal, desperately poor, largely illiterate, and deeply religious society into another country modeled on Western democracies. With fundamental hubris, we also squandered $133 billion on reconstruction and Afghan military training. At least $1 trillion more on the U.S. military mission, all to see the Taliban we routed in 2001 roll into Kabul without a fight. Anyway, I think I've said enough. All this talk about how this is Biden's fault, and it's a terrible thing, and we should stay there forever. Well, on that part, we agree with Donald Trump. Staying in Afghanistan forever would serve no purpose except to, well, make more money for some people that already have, I think, plenty of it. In a way, I guess Donald Trump does deserve some credit for ending this thing, even though the way he planned it, well, <laughs> Stephen Miller, his, his notoriously, um, I guess racist would be the right word for it, aide, really bent over backwards to make sure that Afghans would not be removed from the country in large numbers. So when you hear people trying to blame Biden for this, well, just, um, just you know, see what you can do to correct them. Don't spend a lot of time on it. It's futile effort. But just, you know, throw a few facts in their direction. I mean, that never hurts. And some area where facts uh, might also help would be the um, recall effort against Gavin Newsom. Looking at a political cartoon which came out last week uh, showing a bunch of people wearing elephant masks standing before a blackboard that says Republican plan for winning elections. First one is refuse to certify results if we lose. Second one is pass anti-voting laws and regs. See pamphlet. Third one is 
have recall votes and off years when slacker Democratic voters never manage to turn out. And the fourth one is gerrymander the hell out of America. And you know, this is a good strategy, hold a recall election in an off year, because conservatives and Republicans do tend to turn out with greater regularity than their Democratic uh, opponents. And I wish I could find the, uh, the door hanger that was sent to me about uh, people trying to recall Newsom, explaining that, you know, apparently he's responsible for, uh, I don't know, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, the JFK assassination. No, actually, they do fault him for his mishandling of, of the COVID crisis in the United States, as opposed to the excellent job done by the Republicans under Donald Trump. Anyway, evidently, the, the leader of the pack among the, among the numbskulls that are out there trying to replace Gavin Newsom is radio host Larry Elder. He's considered the frontrunner at the moment. Uh, just for your information, he calls global warming a crock. He opposes any minimum wage laws, and he vows to get, lift all. COVID restrictions in California if we elect him. Now, we see a lot of reasons to not really be enthusiastic about Gavin Newsom, the fact that he is uh, uh, in bed with the water interests in California, which we'll have more to say about a little bit later, uh, is not a good thing. But the polls are showing that, you know, uh, Newsom may be in danger. And if he loses, we're going to replace him with Larry Elder, guy that's going to lift, <laughs> going to try to lift all COVID restrictions in the state. Guy who thinks that global warming is a crock? Yes, it's possible to trade downhill. Like, way downhill. We do want to put one little note of electoral good news here. Not in the United States, but in Zambia. We mentioned on the program the death of the former Zambian leader, Kenneth Kaunda, some weeks back. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, they did hold an election. Kaunda distinguished himself by stepping down when he lost. Something that doesn't happen in Africa very often. But the good news is that buoyed by a high turnout from young voters, the Zambian opposition leader, Hakinde Hichilema, won a landslide presidential election victory over incumbent Edgar Lungu last week. He's the son of cattle herders, earned an MBA in the UK, and went on to make millions of dollars in finance, property, ranching, healthcare, and tourism. Which, if we think about it, might, might not be uh, stellar qualifications to be president of the country, but I don't know. This was his sixth run at the presidency, and his victory certainly reflected widespread discontent with Lungu, who presided over rising unemployment and inflation, as well as Africa's first debt default during the pandemic. Probably didn't help that Lungu had also become increasingly repressive toward his opposition, sending police to crack down violently on Hinchalema's supporters. Anyway, we wish the people of Zambia well. Hope this pans out. Another sad quote I think I'll throw out this point is when one we've used before from Jonathan Swift. How is it possible to expect that mankind will take advice when they will not so much as take warning? And juxtapose that with the fact that they had another motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, in spite of the fact that last year that turned out to be a super spreader COVID event. So naturally they decided, well, let's do it again this year. Yeah, 700,000 people again descended on the small town of Sturgis, and all evidence suggests that, as was the case last year, COVID is surging. Of course, last year they found out that uh, more than half of the counties in the United States were visited by someone who attended the rally then. Same thing is going to happen this year. And in case you haven't noticed, the Delta variant seems to be bringing COVID back in a big way. Looking at the cover of the Sacramento Bee from a few days ago, noting that uh, headline, Sacramento hospitals at capacity amid COVID Delta surge. Article by Michael Mago notes that 
More Sacramento County residents have died of COVID-19 in the first three weeks of August than in any full calendar month since last February, according to county health officials. And yes, it does appear that uh, COVID is on its way toward the biggest surge we've seen in it since last fall. And yes, federal officials are backing off on this notion that um, only 1% of the cases currently um, experiencing COVID are, are among those that are vaccinated. The number appears to be higher than that. But I think it is probably more important in this equation that people are not masking up and they're attending motorcycle rallies. A friend of mine posted some data from Oregon, from the Oregon Health and Science University, uh, noting that of the 35 hospitalized cases uh, cited, this is from about a week ago, 32 were not fully vaccinated, three were fully vaccinated. And that works out to something like 8% of people were fully vaccinated and still were hospitalized. But still, it means that 92% are among those people who skipped the vaccine. Numbers in the ICU, 18 not fully vaccinated, one fully vaccinated. So again, you know, of the people that are in the ICU, 5% are people that are supposedly fully vaccinated. But of course, like everything else in the world, uh, having vaccine administered might not be done right, or you might have had a bad, uh, a bad vial. Hard to say. Among patients on a ventilator in Oregon, 13 not fully vaccinated, one fully vaccinated. So this idea that you don't wind up in the ICU or on a ventilator or, or die if you're fully vaccinated appears to be overselling the vaccine just a bit. Nevertheless, it should be obvious that your numbers are a lot better if you're fully vaccinated than if you are not. And the number of people I've been speaking to lately that uh, have not bothered to go out and get the shot is, is just disturbing the hell out of me. No, the vaccine isn't perfect. Nothing, nothing in the world is perfect, but it ups your odds tremendously. Don't be foolish, dear listener. If you haven't gotten your shots, please go out and do so. And we, I think, desperately need to take a short pause at this juncture, let, let us do that. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to Radio Parallax, and we got lots more to talk about, so don't go away. Unless you're taking the time to go out and get vaccinated. In that case, you can pick up the show later.